Well, hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to week five of Return to Eden. This is our, our Bring Your Own Bible BYOB series all about the law of Moses. And I got to say, I've been very pleasantly surprised with the response that we've gotten from this series. Uh, I was a little nervous going into this because when I told people we were going to be doing a six-week series about the law in the dead of winter in February, people looked at me like, ooh, <laughs> not so sure that's a good idea. But hey, it's been good. And I think it's, because it's been good because we're helping to put the law, this really uncomfortable, weird part of our Bibles, in the context of a really beautiful story. And it's a story that every one of us is a part of, as we've been saying. Um, And that story, if I had to really sum it up very, very simply, is this. Humanity gets banished through their own choice from the garden, the mountain garden of Eden, and God immediately begins pursuing them with his relentless faithfulness to bring them back to bring them back into the garden. And that's what the law is meant to do. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking specifically about some of the themes that you find in the law, themes like justice and holiness. And today, we're going to look at probably, well, I would argue it's the most provocative of all the themes, of all the aspects of the law. In my opinion, it is the one that is the most provocative and startling if you really think about it, okay? And it's probably going to surprise you that this is it. It's the Sabbath. I think it's the most provocative part of the law, and so we're going to talk about that today. Now, we're going to dive straight in, and we have to start with this theme, the place that we start with every one of these themes, in the Garden of Eden. The story of the Garden of Eden plays a significant role in understanding the Sabbath. So let's start, let's start right here. First of all, in Genesis, the very beginning of the story, it tells us that God created the earth in six days— But then on the seventh day, he rested. He stopped from his work or he Sabbathed. He Sabbathed. Um, And so before he did that, though, God created humanity. He created a man, Adam. And it tells him, it tells this. And feel free if you want to open up your Bibles and follow along in Genesis, you can. Eventually, we'll head over to Deuteronomy to look at the Sabbath laws. But here we go. Genesis 2 God uh, places man in the garden, and 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 it says this. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to, and this is important, to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you you are sure to die. So, okay, this uh, phrase, tending and watching over the garden, this is so important because this, this is the intended vocation of humanity. This is the job that we are meant to have, to tend and watch over the garden. We are meant to be gardeners. We are meant to be stewards of the beautiful creation that God has placed us in the middle of. Our job is to make sure that everything around us is in order, the order that God intends. This is work, but it's not, it's not back-breaking labor, okay? This kind of work is, is instead, it's meant to be like a, a free, abundant life. The, the image that uh, we're meant to have is, is, you know, of humans tending this bountiful garden. They're pruning a fruit tree here and, and trimming some bushes there and then, you know, eating their fill of whatever they could find. Seeds and fruits and nuts and plants. They're all just springing up from this fertile ground. It's a, it's a uh, very restful, fruitful kind of work. That's the job that we're meant to have. Now, when God tells Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in that verse, the literal Hebrew there says this, says, from all the trees of the garden, eat, 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 eat. It's said twice to emphasize it. This is a, um, 
were a way that Hebrew writers try to really, you know, get a point home. They say, they say it twice. So eat, eat. That's what God is telling Adam. In other words, you're, you've got access to so much food, so much abundance. Eat, eat, have your fill. But of course, as the story says, there's one tree that the humans are not allowed to eat from, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or as we've been calling it in this series, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Now, if you want to know why I call it that, you've got to go back and rewatch that first message in the series. I explain it all there. But suffice it to say, this tree, this second tree in the garden, there's the tree of life and this one, this tree is all about self-sufficiency. This is the tree that uh, basically says, God, all that abundance that you've put around me, the tree of life, all that other stuff, it's not enough. It's not enough. No, I want to define good and bad for myself. I want to define reality. I'm going to be self-sufficient. And of course, that tree is exactly the one that Adam and Eve eat from. That's the choice that they make. Uh, they, they choose to be their own gods. They want to define good and bad for themselves. And as God says, the consequence of this choice is death. It's death. But the death that comes about from this choice is not exactly the kind of death that you and I might initially assume. Now, it does mean physical death. Eventually, Adam and Eve do physically die, and presumably if they had just not eaten that tree, they would have continued to live forever. But there's more death than, than just that that comes uh, about because of this choice. It's deeper than just that. Uh, this death that comes about from the choice for human self-sufficiency is the death of God's created intentions. It's a different kind of death. This, this is the death of the, the, the relationship that God has with humanity. It's the breakdown of humanity's relationship with one another. And it's the corruption of our relationship with the, with the earth itself, with the world. Listen to how God describes the consequences of humanity's choice for self-sufficiency uh, instead of trust. Listen to what he says to Adam in Genesis 3. He says, Adam, since you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. You see, this is a kind of, of death between humans and the earth, where once there was abundance, now there's struggle. Where once it was eat, eat, now it's sweat and toil and pain. The very plants that humans were once consuming and, and enjoying are now fighting back. Thorns, thistles, right? Humanity, which was given the job to tend the ground, is now at war with it. This is a struggle. It's a, it's a battle. This, interestingly, uh, the Hebrew words for human and ground are actually very similar. Human, the Hebrew word is Adam. By the way, that's where Adam gets his name. His literal name is just human. So anyway, Adam, human. And then Adam or Adama is ground. So the ground is like, uh, there's Adam, Adama. They're meant to be connected. Do you see that connection? But at this point, from this, this choice that humans make, that connection is severed, and now there's conflict. There's conflict. And humans, just to survive, are being ground back into the dust from which we were made. You were made from dust, and to dust you will return. 
In this story, Adam and Eve, and and frankly, humanity writ large, we chose self-sufficiency, and we choose self-sufficiency again and again instead of trusting in God's abundance. And death, the breakdown of the created order, is always the inevitable consequence. We still make this choice, and we still feel this consequence today. Every day. This is why we feel the grind, the grind of getting through another week. The endless slog of work, the weight that we feel on our shoulders every day just trying to make it. The anxiety of trying to put food on the table day after day after day. We feel it. But, and it's my favorite part in any sermon when I get to say that word, because there's always a however, there's always a but, but God from the very beginning is not content to let humanity struggle endlessly like this. No, as we've said a million times in this series, God wants to bring us back into his presence, back into the abundant life of the garden, back to eat, eat. That's what he wants. He wants us back. And, and God wants humanity, ultimately, to experience fullness of life, fullness of life. So when we look through this story, God immediately begins to set the stage for a divine rescue mission to try to bring humanity back into the garden by calling a people, the Israelites, calling them to be a unique nation and and inviting them to live a life of trust, to to live that life of trust and not self-sufficiency. So when we look at the story, we see in the beginning of the book of Exodus that the Israelites are being ground to dust by work. They're slaves in Egypt. And I wish I had time. Man, I could preach on this for like hours if, if I could. I, I won't, I promise. Uh, but man, th- there's so many parallels in the Exodus story to the Genesis st- story. There are, are thematic and imagery. There's so much good stuff. I could talk about it forever. I won't. Okay, but suffice it to say, the Israelites are being ground to dust, but God rescues them. He takes them out of Egypt. He takes them safely across the Red Sea. And then he meets with them on another divine mountain, Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. Now this law, this code that that, uh, God gives to Israel, from the very beginning, it is meant, as we've said in this series, to depict a new way to live. A new way to, uh, to have a society, a society that looks like Eden again. Holy, just loving, abundant, no longer ground to dust by the struggle to survive. That's what the law depicts. And to help accomplish this vision, to help give the Israelites a picture of what they are meant to be in this world, God introduces a practice called Sabbath. And again, this is a very radical practice. So let's, let's look at it and talk about it. Look at Deuteronomy 5 with me. Um, Now we're going to look at starting at verse 12. This is part of the Ten Commandments. And again, I preached on the Ten Commandments as a whole several weeks ago. But let's just look at this one and we'll dive in a little deeper. Deuteronomy 5, starting in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, God says, as the Lord your God has commanded you. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your oxen, your donkeys, and other livestock, and any foreigners living among you. All your male and female servants must rest as you do. Remember, 
You were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and his powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. Okay, so as I said before, God Sabbathed on the seventh day after creating the world, and now the Israelites are being invited to do the same thing, to rest one day out of every seven. Now, there's a, a, a man, Rabbi Abraham Heschel, who is inc- an incredible uh, thinker, Jewish uh, thinker. He calls the Sabbath a cathedral in time. A cathedral in time. Now, uh, if you remember, we've talked about the tabernacle in this series. The tabernacle was a tent, a physical place where the Israelites could meet with God. It was as if it was like a sacred space on the earth where they could meet with God. Well, the Sabbath is kind of like a tabernacle in time. It's a sacred, it's a sacred space in our week, in our, in, in our lives where we can meet with God. In Israel, this Sabbath day idea, this one day out of every seven, this was a radically distinct uh, thing for the nation. As far as we can tell, looking at ancient sources, there are no other nations that had anything like a Sabbath. This was Israel's alone in the ancient world. Now, the word Sabbath literally means to stop, to, to bring something to an end. So you could even call a Sabbath day a stop day. It's about stopping something, about about ending the grind for a period of time. So here's what it looked like, practically speaking. Uh, For the Jewish people, every Friday evening to Saturday evening, there would be 24 hours where the entire community would rest. They'd rest together. And uh, this was a time, I mean, it sounds like it would have been a blast. It was a time of community, of celebration, of worshiping God together, and of course, of these long, leisurely meals, right? Eat, eat. This was, this was a restful time for the whole community. And look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. It says this, and it's repeated twice because this is so important. But this was not a time for the rich to rest while all their servants waited on them. Okay, that was not what this was. No, this was a time for everyone. Sons and daughters, servants, foreigners, even livestock. I mean, look at this. Your animals got a day to completely rest. Sabbath was like comprehensive, right? Well, what does that sound like to you? This idea of humans and animals, everybody just chilling out. It sounds like Eden. It sounds like Eden, and that's exactly what it's meant to make us think. Sabbath, as a concept, was a rehearsal of new creation. Sabbath was a a chance for the people of Israel to practice what it would be like to return to the garden. Sabbath is a, is a, a weekly reminder of what's to come. It is meant to help the people understand where they are headed. One day, every week, of no work whatsoever. Now, okay, real talk for a moment. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, really, if we're being really honest, thinking about the idea of not doing anything productive for one day every single week, that seems, that seems a little bit too idealistic for me. I mean, what are we supposed to do? We sit around a campfire and braid flowers into our hair, right? Somebody pull out a guitar. We're going to make some tie-dye shirts. What is this? Come on. It's ridiculous, right? Now, okay, maybe, maybe it's ridiculous because we live in the modern world and we're busy people and maybe it just, maybe back then it would have been a much more uh, acceptable idea. Well, no, no. In fact, I would argue that in the ancient world, the concept of Sabbath was even more wild, even more ridiculous Think about it. Imagine that you were a farmer, okay, living in the ancient world. Your family's survival depends on the success of your harvest. 
Everything depends on how much you're able to maximize your crop yield. If you don't get enough crops this year, your kids are going to go hungry. You could slide into poverty, right? Living in an agricultural society, it was important that you maximize all the work you could do. And so now, in the midst of that culture, God is telling the people of Israel, uh, you know what, you need to spend one-seventh of your time just sitting around. Instead of doing all the other stuff you could be doing out there, uh, you know, planting and watering and tilling and harvesting and, and pressing olives and, and, you know, milling flour and getting it done. Instead of all that, you've just got to stop. That's a pretty wild idea, but, well, but wait, but not just that. Because the Sabbath day is only the beginning. It's only scratching the surface of what this law was actually inviting the Israelites to do. Because if you read on in the law, what you find is that there is also a command that the Israelites were to practice a Sabbath year. Every seven years, they were supposed to spend the entire year not working at all. Not working at all. They weren't allowed to harvest or, or till or do anything in the fields. That's an entire year where the land now gets added to the things that get to rest. We're talking about animals and humans and servants and foreigners and the land itself gets to rest. Wild animals, you're not even allowed to keep wild animals out of your fields. They get to eat whatever they need, whatever they want. That is getting kind of wild. Oh, but not just that. Oh, and I forgot to mention, on the Sabbath year, if you have any slaves or if you're a slave— all slavery is, is over. You get released. And uh, if you have any debts, all of your debts are canceled. So we're getting into extremely ridiculous territory. But then, on top of everything else, there is the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee happens every 50 years. Basically, after every seventh Sabbath year, you're supposed to take another Sabbath year. That's two in a row of no working. And you're supposed to have the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, one of the most powerful things of the year of Jubilee is that all land goes back to its ancestral owners. So if you, if maybe your grandfather, if he, you know, had, fell into hard times and had to sell his land, your family will get that land back on the year of Jubilee. If you've been acquiring a bunch of land and trying to be a big wealthy person, well, you're going to lose all that land because it all goes back. Okay, are you, are you with me now? We're getting into some crazy making here. These ideas of the Sabbath and the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee, it, it gets wild. It's absolutely, it's a lot. It's a lot. I'll just say that. Now, I realize I just dumped all that on you. There's so much. And I could, again, I could talk about this forever and ever. Um, I don't want to overwhelm you. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Every week in this series, I've been on Facebook, Grace's Facebook page live at 7 p.m. on Wednesday nights. And the very last one is going to be this Wednesday. So if you are interested in hearing me talk a little bit more about this, or if you have any specific questions that you'd like answered, join us. Join me. Uh, it's been fun so far. I've been talking about, you know, space-time continuum and just war theory and, you know, ideas about the atonement. Like, it's been all over the place. It's been a lot of fun. So Wednesday nights, 7 p.m., Grace's Facebook page. And if you want to ask a question, you can send it to gracechurch.us slash BYOB, and it'll come straight to me. Um, also, again, this is, if you're just very curious, I made a video on my YouTube channel all about the Sabbath rest for the land. It was part of a seminary project. So if you're interested in learning about that as I walk around my farm in the winter talking about the Sabbath year, feel free to check that out as well. I put the link in the app notes. But for now, I'll just say this. The Sabbath year was a lot, and it's okay that it's like kind of blowing our minds a little bit right now. Sabbath day, Sabbath year, year of jubilee, it's radical stuff. Like I said, this is probably the most provocative part of the law, in my opinion, in my opinion. 
We're supposed to practice a return to Eden now. Now. Pretending that we're back in the garden one day a week, one year every seven years. It's wild. It's wild. Now, of course, at this point, there's a pretty obvious question that we might want to ask. How is this supposed to be possible? Like, we can see how maybe you get through a, a week without working one day, right? We're okay with days off, but how in the world are you supposed to go an entire year without harvesting? Well, that's part of the law as well. God actually speaks to that. And he says uh, in, in Leviticus 25 that he's going to knock your socks off in the sixth year to give you enough for the seventh. This is what he says. He says, I will send my blessing for you in the sixth year so that the land will produce a crop large enough for three years. You're going to have enough food, essentially. And it goes on. You're going to have enough food to last you, not only the Sabbath year, but the year after that, you're going to have plenty of leftovers. In other words, if you are going to uh, trust in God's provision, he is going to blow your mind with abundance. Eat, eat is essentially his, his posture towards this. You have to choose. If you're going to eat from the tree of life, it's going to be abundant. But you have to make that choice and not eat from the tree of self-sufficiency. Trust, not self-sufficiency. This right here is the operating principle behind all of these Sabbath ideas. The point of all of this is that you do not have to be ground into dust by the struggle to survive. God's abundance, his, his fullness of life is available to you. But you have to trust You have to trust that he's actually got your best interests in mind. You have to trust that he can care for you better than you can care for yourself. That, that is what the Sabbath is all about. The Sabbath day is a provocative reminder every single week that God wants you, wants humanity to return to the garden. It's a day of rest where the entire community can experience fullness of life. If you keep reading in the story, the story of the people of Israel, you find out that, yeah, these were a little bit of, these these did seem to be pretty ridiculous ideas because they didn't do a very good job of following them. Uh, First of all, there's a real rocky road with Sabbath observance and people started saying, okay, we'll Sabbath, but our servants are going to work for us on the Sabbath and all, all sorts of stuff. The prophets get all worked up about this later on in the story. And frankly, there is no at least no complete record of the Israelites ever actually taking a Sabbath year in the Bible. So we don't even see that ever come to fruition, much less the year of Jubilee. So it's a bit of a rocky road. Now, there is a time in the the story of the people of God where um, some of the religious leaders of Israel start to kind of get serious about the Sabbath. And they start saying, you know, we're going to be, we're going to take this seriously and we're going to make sure that nobody in our community is working on the Sabbath. Now, these religious leaders were named the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they wanted to take this really seriously. And so you think, okay, well, good. Maybe they're getting Israel back on track. Maybe we're making some progress here. Except the Pharisees kind of were missing the point a little bit. You see, the Pharisees, they went about creating a ton of additional laws and regulations that would protect you from ever possibly breaking one of the laws. So, for example, the Sabbath says you can't work, which they started to interpret as, well, we don't want to travel too far because then you might be working by traveling. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to say how many feet away from your house you're allowed to go on the Sabbath so that you don't accidentally work, right? So they started creating rule after rule after rule to kind of protect everybody from ever accidentally breaking the Sabbath. You know what they were doing? 
is they were getting back to the letter of the law. They thought if we can just follow this law to the letter, we'll be on track. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he just turns everything upside down because Jesus wasn't interested in getting back to the letter of the law. He was interested in returning to the spirit of the law. And so he went out of his way, seemingly, to heal people on the Sabbath, which all the Pharisees considered work. He went out of his way to to bring healing to somebody with uh, diseases or deformities and stuff like that. And he would do it when the Pharisees were around just to challenge them. And guess what? They didn't like that so much. They were outraged by it. But he continued to do it. And when they would challenge him on this, here's the kinds of things he would say about it. In Mark 2, he says, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. You've got it backwards, in other other words. Uh, Or in Mark 3, he says, uh, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or to destroy it? Life or death? You see, he's bringing back this dichotomy. The Pharisees had turned the Sabbath, Sabbath observance into legalism. Yet another way to grind people into dust. Somehow, they had found a way to turn not working into another kind of work, right? They were forcing people to to jump through all of these hoops. It It was grinding people down. But Jesus knew that that was not the point of the Sabbath at all. No, the Sabbath was a gift of life from God. It was not a time of oppression. It was a chance to experience abundance and healing. It was a time to rest in God's presence and provision eat, eat. That's what the Sabbath is all about. And the Pharisees just missed it. So much so that Mark tells us that it was after one of these these, uh, occasions of him healing on the Sabbath, they were so upset about this that this is what begins them thinking about how to kill him. Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath in their mind and they wanted to kill him for it. They wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus who embodied a return to Eden. His whole life was basically a walking example of God's abundance, right? Jesus, who turned water into wine at a party, who orchestrated miraculous catches of fish, who fed 5,000 people with unlimited breadsticks. Like, Jesus was all about abundance. He was all about it. He spread fullness of life everywhere he went. The law introduced the Sabbath day, right? The Sabbath day was a taste of Eden. Well, Jesus lived a Sabbath life. He lived a Sabbath life, and he invited his followers, including you and me, to live it with him. We are invited to live a Sabbath life. Okay, so how do we do that? Right? That's the obvious question. How in the world do we live a Sabbath life? Now, most times when I hear Sabbath applied to modern-day Christians, it usually has something to do with getting real serious about your day off, right? Making sure that you're really taking a day off. And that's great. And by the way, we really do need to do that. We work too much. We all work too much. But I don't want to go there just to specifically say that we should all kind of try to have a day off. I want to take a much bigger look at this idea of the Sabbath and ask, what does it teach us about our lives as a whole? What can we learn from this Sabbath idea about the values that we live out day after day? So I'm going to ask you three questions, 
And these questions, I, I, they are going to be a little, a little bit provocative. I'm going to be pushing a little bit, but I'm doing this so that all of us can reflect on the choices that we are making and see how much of a Sabbath life we are actually choosing to live. Okay? You okay with that? So let me ask you question number one. Question number one, are you addicted to the grind or are you okay with enough? Are you addicted to the grind or are you okay with enough? Now look, I, I get it, okay? I get it. We live in a workaholic culture. It's the American culture. We take pride in being busy, in the hustle, in the drive. Like that's part of what makes us our nation, right? It, it, it's the American dream to keep working hard. And it's why we have crippling anxiety trying to get straight A's, right students? It's why you stay up your job late, night after night after night, even though it's making you sick. It's why you're neglecting your family because you're trying to get that next promotion, that next raise. That's why you're doing all of this. You're doing all of this even though you know that it's grinding you into dust. Let me tell you a secret. I know for a fact exactly how much money you need to be perfectly happy. You want to know? More. More. You're not going to make enough, ever. You're not going to get there. You're a donkey chasing a carrot. You're not going to get it. There is no amount of money that's going to make you say, finally, I did it, I've arrived, and I'm done. It's not going to happen. That's not how money works. Living a Sabbath life, or even thinking about living a Sabbath life, is you saying with confidence and boldness, enough, enough. I don't want to be ground to dust just so I can die and take none of it with me. Enough. The Sabbath, it challenges us to be okay with what God wants to give us, not what we want to give ourselves. To put a limit on our drive, and I know that sounds un-American, but the Sabbath invites us to do that. To acknowledge that there is something that is more important than more. Rabbi Heschel, in his book, the Sabbath, which I strongly encourage anyone to read. It's really, really powerful. He says this about our work. He says, six days a week, we wrestle with the world. We wring profit from the earth. And on the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. There's more than this. There's something beyond us. Oh, but Barry, I know what you're probably thinking, but Barry, if I, if I don't keep working, if I don't keep hustling, then I'm not going to get straight A's, or I won't get that promotion, or I'm not going to make my boss very happy for sure. Well, maybe not. Maybe not, but let me ask you this. Do you really believe, deep down, do you really believe that your self-sufficiency is ever going to be enough? Or do you believe that God wants to draw you into a life of abundance? Do you trust that God really does want the best for you? That he actually wants you to eat, eat? Or do you just trust too much in your own self-sufficiency? You've got to eat from that second tree. Is it just too tempting? Are you addicted to the grind? Or are you okay with enough? Question number two is similar but it's a little different and I'll explain it. Question number two, are you trying to make it on your own or are you allowing God to meet your needs? 
Are you trying to make it on your own or are you allowing God to meet your needs? Now, for some of you, I know that the grind that you are in is not about greed. It's not about getting more stuff. No, it's about survival, right? You are stuck in this grind because you've got to put food on the table. You've got kids and, and family. You, you feel like you don't have a choice. You've got to keep hustling. If that's you, I want to remind you of something that I mentioned earlier, something that the the story points out to us. The Sabbath was for everyone, okay? The Sabbath was for everyone. This meant children and servants and foreigners, livestock, everybody in the community would rest. This was a whole community affair. Now, here's why I say this. Because you may feel stuck in the grind, but you are not in this alone, Jesus didn't save a bunch of individual people. He saved a community. He created the church so that we together could experience a Sabbath kind of life. The only way Sabbath is even made possible is if an entire community is willing to care for one another, to lift each other up. And we want to care for you. If you find yourself being ground to dust by the demands of this life and you feel like you don't have a choice, I want you to know that is why we have life groups. So you're not going through this this whole journey by yourself. And frankly, it's why we have our care center. Our care center exists with its choice food pantry and the co-op and the car care ministry and our micro loans and all of the things. We do all of that so that you can be lifted out of the grind, so that you can start to experience rest and abundance now, not just someday, but right now. And I want to tell you something. I know that when you imagine yourself coming to the care center for help, I know that so many of you feel this deep sense of shame. You feel that, you feel like, oh, I'm not, I shouldn't be doing this. I should just be working harder. I should be able to provide for myself. That is a lie. And I want to tell you why. When you come into the care center, you will never experience shame. There is no shame in the care center. What there is, is love. What there is, is family. What there is, is acceptance. You will find friends who look at you as an equal, who look at you as a partner in this life. Nobody will think of you as a charity case, ever. Let us care for you. My, my uh, friend, Chuck Gross, who I look up to more than anybody, Chuck always says to people, he says, look, there is a time in our lives for receiving and there is a time for giving. Right now, you're in a season of receiving. Receive and let us give because someday you will be on the other side and you will have an opportunity to give. So there is no shame in coming to the care center. Let us lift you up so that you can be free of the grind and you can experience the abundance that God longs for you to have. You don't have to do this alone. Finally, I'll I'll ask this of everybody. Is every moment of your life devoted to yourself? Or do you make time to spread fullness of life? Here's what I mean. If you remember the story, the Sabbath was a way for the Israelites to rehearse the new creation, to practice being back in Eden, right? Well, what happened in Eden? Humanity worked, right? There's there's dignity in work. But what did I say? Work in, in Eden is not a grind for survival, It's it's living out God's purposes. It's tending to the garden, caring for for plants and creatures, shepherding the animals in a place of abundance, delighting in one another. That is what the work that we are meant to be doing looks like. 
humanity from the very beginning was meant to spread fullness of life, to protect it for one another. That is and was our vocation. And Sabbath, the whole idea of Sabbath invites us to consider going back to that, to make time in our lives to bring life to others. That's why Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. He did it because that's what the whole day is all about. Now, this could take a lot of forms for you. This could mean uh, caring for your neighbors or, or spreading kindness and joy with your coworkers or at school. It could mean loving that unlovable person in your life. It could mean visiting the elderly or volunteering at church or, or it could mean standing up for injustice or caring for the planet itself. Healing the broken places of this world. But here's the thing. You have to make time for it. You have to carve out a sanctuary in time. A sacred place where you will say, yes, I am going to give myself to something beyond me. If you do that, if you begin to spread life to others, then you will start to experience the abundance of a Sabbath kind of life. Look beyond yourself and protect that time in your life where you can spread fullness of life for others, where you can return to Eden, if only for a while. And here's the irony of it all. When we do this, when we begin looking beyond ourselves, when we spread life to others, <clears throat> that is exactly the moment when we begin to come alive ourselves. Ourselves. 